The following Dharma talk was given on retreat led by Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I remember hearing a story a while back. I'm not sure the exact context, but it was uh, somebody asking a teacher about what's the equivalent in Buddhism of grace. And this teacher, this Buddhist teacher responded, patience is grace in Buddhism. So there's a sense of patience as a doorway. And uh, we probably all know pretty well that feeling of being driven by our habits, you know, the greediness in our mind and our mind gets fixed on some idea or some way that will make me happy. And then it's it's like being driven. We can't put it down. Even those times when we kind of know better, like but it's like it's under our skin and we're gonna follow through with it. So that feeling of grace is similar to what we mean by liberation or nibbana, that lightness of the mind, not obsessed or not driven. So with all of these ten paramis, you know, patience is just one of the ten paramis, the other paramis, generosity and wisdom resoluteness and renunciation and truthfulness and loving-kindness and equanimity. A couple others, maybe. (laughs) They're all uh, seen as a force in the mind, a force of purity in the mind, that, that that potential is there. the potential for all of these ten forces or ten expressions of grace, we could say. And so part of what we can do on on this retreat, you know, we have quite a few days and we're interested in this experience of grace, of the mind being patient with conditions in a way that is liberating, really light, And it's a kind of purity, a a way of being that could just as easily extend itself to any particular set of conditions. It's not specific, like the patience that's allowing our heart to be light or not burdened. That could just as easily be useful in another situation. That's true with any expression of wisdom or any expression of liberation. We even, you could even say that in terms of loving kindness, like we might have a moment with our cat, you know, just pure unconditional love or your dog or your friend or you're seeing the beautiful light today. You know, it's nice. One of our first relatively cold days and the light has a particular look 
when it's cold and the sky is quite clear. And there can be a real purity of that appreciation or that love. But one of the characteristics is that it's not, that the mind recognizes that it's not specific to these conditions. It's not the gratitude or the appreciation isn't specific to the light on this winter day or this interaction I'm having with the cat or whatever it might be. The beauty or the goodness of the mind or the heart or the way of being, the way of relating is uh, something universal or universally available. So that's what we're looking for in this practice of patience. This is from Sharon Salzberg. She says, you may have dishonored it or violated its promise of wholeness. Think about how many times our mind got into very disgusting, narrow, hateful, needy, greedy, you know, circles of thought, obsessive patterns, where we really, our mind, the content of the mind, the expression of the mind was really naughty or bad or despicable or whatever. But yet, as she says, it remains unchanged and is waiting for us to claim it, right? We may have dishonored it or violated its promise of wholeness, but it remains unchanged and is waiting for us to claim it. So this is again a pointing to the purity, this potential, this unlimited potential of patience or any of these ten paramis. And the parmi, you know, the beautiful qualities of the heart, the more technical def, uh, translation is uh, that which crosses life's floods or used to cross over life's, life's floods. And floods, these floods, asawas is the Pali word. This is, these are the outflows of the mind. The cankers is another translation you know, the, the <laughs> Ajahn Sushito, somewhere, maybe in the chapter I sent you all, talks about the sticky bits, right? the sticky bits of the mind, taints, corruptions, intoxicant biases, <laughs> outflows, floods. These are the different ways the word asawa is translated So by definition, these paramis, like patients, they're used or they're available to cross over these floods or to be liberated from these floods. All the ways, all the sticky bits, all the ways our mind swirls in these cycles of samsara, these feedback loops of obsessive thinking, conceptual proliferation, obsessive, worldly activity of our mind. And the tightness of that and the heaviness of that. So we want to think of it as a kind of grace, a liberating grace, just waiting for us to claim it. 
This comes very near the beginning of Joseph Goldstein's book, Insight Meditation, which is a great summary of the practice. If you haven't seen it, it's now it's quite old. It's been around maybe almost 20 years, but I still refer back to it. So he has a chapter called Grace or Help Along the Way. He says, I feel that the paramis are one great influence in our experience that corresponds to the sense of grace, not as a theological doctrine or metaphysical concept, but as something we can really feel and know. So we want to have a sense with any of these beautiful qualities of the heart that even though it may not be fully developed, there's a sense of its potential. You know that, and he has this poem in this chapter, I won't read it, but many of you know the poem St. Francis in the Sow by Galway Canal and how St. Francis puts his hand, his hand on the brow of the pig and helps the sow remember all the way down to its spiny tail the perfect loveliness of sow, right? And so we want to have that, like even little slivers during the day of kindness and little slivers of truthfulness and resoluteness and patience and all of these beautiful qualities. It may not seem like much, but it may be just in that moment, the mind lacking imagination to see all the way through the exterior or the particulars, and to see like the, the capacity to just bear with the sit until the bell, the bell rings. Like to see the potential of that fearless quality of the mind that's willing to just bear with things because that's the way it is now. Or that patience with ambiguity or uncertainty or confusion. Not to fall into the habit of thinking, I can't practice until this doubt is clarified or this doubt is removed. And to see that, the potential of that. And Joseph goes on, he says here, Parami does not come from some, some being outside of ourselves. Rather, it comes from our own gradually accumulated purity. A Buddhist understanding of reliance on a higher power would not necessarily involve reliance on some supernormal being. It is rather a reliance on these forces of purity in ourselves that are outside our small constricted sense of I and that constitute the source of grace in our lives. And this is challenging for us because, you know, one of our real, one of the expressions of these floods is ignorance or fixed views. And we have a very often a fixed view of our own limitations. We're pretty convinced that, you know, the habits of my mind, the particular situation life situation of me is limited, problematic. We all have different experiences that are regular visitors in our sit, 
And they can show up for months or even years. I mean, not absolutely every sit or every moment in every sit, but pretty frequent visitors. And because of that frequency, it can seem as if we're not making progress. But you know how it is. I mean, it may be true. I mean, it could be that we're just digging the hole deeper. That's We humans have that capacity when facing something that's challenging to reaffirm the wrong view, the wrong idea of whatever it is that's presenting itself in a way that deepens the hole or makes that whatever is presenting itself for us, make it seem more solid, more real, more formidable. But there's, uh, you know, there's something about uh, this sense of not giving up. And even if, like Sharon's quote that I read earlier, even if we've really blown it for 20 years in our practice, you know, whatever, how deep the hole is, there's, we want to be careful about the story we tell ourselves about how hard the climb out of the hole is going to be. And remember, there's, there's sort of two parts of our practice. There's one part where we really are, in a sense, chipping away at the habit energies of the mind and transforming slowly, gradually, transforming the habit energies of the mind. And that process is gradual, and we have to respect the momentum of the habit energies and stick with it. But there's another whole part of practice, which is a deepening understanding or a deepening realization that the work of transforming habit energies is not self. So on the one hand, initially, it feels like almost hopeless work to start to take responsibility for the force of habit in the mind and to apply myself to do whatever I can do to change the force of habit in the mind in a direction that's more wholesome. And as I do that with more patience, more integrity, more lightness, more joy, right, more truthfulness, more wisdom, more kindness, more equanimity, then something else dawns on the mind that this seemingly impossible work of purifying the mind of its bad habits is not self. It's the activity of nature. So the Buddha makes his point in a number of different ways, but one way he does is he says, the amount of karma we're dragging along is inconceivable. So if you think, he doesn't say this, but this is sort of my comment. So if we think that the path is about somehow getting in there and purifying all the karma, all the unfinished business that we're dragging along, we're mistaken. The path is realizing that all that unfinished stuff is not self. Or another way is meeting all of the unfinished karma that gets triggered and then expresses itself. So meeting 
the defensiveness that somebody's triggered in me or meeting the complacency that somebody's triggered in me or meeting the anger or meeting the greediness or meeting the boredom that some something or some situation has triggered in me, meeting it with emptiness. What is boredom when there's no part of the mind personalizing that movement, that movement of emotion or that movement of cognitive activity? What is the problem with greed when it meets no resistance? Right? So a thought, an emotion, any kind of mental activity is just a movement of mental energy, let's call it, right? And if there's no part of the mind resisting that movement, then it's a little bit like a shooting star. You know, it's, I mean, from a subjective experience, not the actual piece of dust or whatever it is, stone. But from our perspective, where we see this just flash of light. It's a little bit like a thought, an emotion, some disposition, negative, let's say, unwholesome disposition that's gotten triggered, just has this momentary display in the mind, and then it ceases. And so when all of the karmic baggage that somehow is associated with this mind stream gets triggered, if I'm if my mind is is in a really narrow place, taking things very personally, then even relatively minor shooting stars become big dramas. What the hell are you doing there? <laughs> you know, in my mind or in my heart or in my body. This isn't right. This isn't fair. Or I love it. It's so great. Did you see that? It's beautiful. You know, that's me. So we when we personalize the expression of karma in our life, then we create karma, more karma. So that's the endlessness of samsara. So that's what I meant last night when I was talking about um, relating to intention in the mind with wisdom. Like, Can we feel the tug of intention without it becoming anything other than the tug that it is. It's just that tug. That it's, that's a momentary expression in the heart. It's a, just a tug. Now, some of those tugs seem really big, but that's more about the habit of interpreting it as mine than it is about the tug itself. So we want a lot of humility about what intention, what the tug of intention is. What is intention stripped away of any meaning the mind is giving it in this moment? Right? So if you, you know, we have the intention to really want to understand what Mark's saying tonight or the intention to get home and into the warm bed, intention for the retreat to be done. I'm ready to be done with this retreat. So if we strip away the meaning so that that's just a tug in the heart, just a movement in the mind, we see that intention, the playing out of karma, it's something, but it's not much of something. 
So much of what makes karma so big is what the mind immediately does with it. This refers to that simile that many of you have heard because I use it a lot and it's well known in the Buddhist tradition about salt and whether when you take a cup of salt and you pour it into a pint of water, that water is going to be extremely salty. But if you take a cup of salt and you pour it into Lake Superior, you're not going to notice the salt. And it's the same. So we're doing two things. We're, you know, in the course of living our life and being more mindful, we're slowly, gradually wearing out old habit energies of our personality by not acting on them, right? And we're developing new habit energies that are beautiful, right? Aren't we? Hopefully. And so that's this gradual <clears throat> work of purifying the mind of its habit energies. And that work of taking responsibility for the habit energies, not being negligent, not assuming because we were told that it's all impersonal that my anger or my judging mind, I don't have to change. Just because it's ultimately not personal. Well, <clears throat> if it's not personal, then it doesn't matter whether you change or not. So why not change it? Why not learn how to become less judgmental? Right? So we, we really invest in purification purifying the mind, purifying the heart. And one of the effects of this is things start to stabilize. And in that stability, because now the mind is a little bit more pure of negativity, of greed, anger, and delusion, and there's just more clarity. And it just slowly dawns in the mind a much more liberating insight than previously. Like previously, our insights were just like, that's not so skillful. What I just said, that's not so skillful. Or what I just did, that seemed really skillful. So initially in practice with mindfulness, being more awake, that's the level of insight. Is we start to notice, like um, being a bull in a, ch- in a china shop, You know, we, we notice how many st- toes we're stepping on, how many times we make a mess of things. Or those times when things work out pretty well. And we and in seeing that, like making messes and when things work out pretty well, we slowly shift. Right? We're really patient and we slowly shift how we are in the world. And that stabilizes. And then this other insight starts to dawn on the mind, which is that work of purification isn't pure uh, isn't personal. It's like a discernment or an intuition that it's happening on its own. So, in a sense, there's still a person taking responsibility for his bad habits, but that person who's taking responsibility for his bad habits is the activity of nature. There's no center to that person doing his best to take responsibility for his bad habits and to cultivate good habits. But it's still happening, but now it's being more and more understood as the activity of nature, not this weight of a me who's trying hard to correct my bad habits 
and establish good habits. It feels so proud when I do establish good habits and feels like such a failure when my bad habits reemerge. I thought it was gone. I thought I was done with that. And there it is again. It's not fair. It's not my fault. You bring it out in me. <laughs> right? It's like that's what we think. Of course I'm self-righteous. They weren't idiots. The politicians weren't idiots. I wouldn't have to be so self-righteous. You know, somebody's got to be angry. What's that bumper? If we're not angry, we're not paying attention. So he ends this section by saying, in the long course of evolution in this lifetime, and perhaps over many lifetimes, we have generated a power of purity in our minds by acts of generosity and loving kindness, by deepening understanding and wisdom. This power becomes the karmic force that brings blessings into our life. So our own inner development, not an external agent, brings us this grace. Develop and strengthen the paramis within you. And from, the, and from that source, enjoy the blessings that result. So we can imagine, um, I think it is good to imagine, the depth of the paramis. And, you know, we see it in some people, a kind of power, like how this person just seems to have a lot of equanimity. I hear this a lot from people who have partners and, you know, they see me and they're developing their practice and, and they, some of them, it's surprisingly, surprisingly high number of them say, you know, my partner just seems to have natural equanimity and they don't like it. <laughs> I mean, they do like it and they do appreciate it, but it's, it seems at times not fair. Like, how come that person has so much equanimity? And I tell them, well, some people have done their work before and we're just unaware of it. And sometimes the equanimity is the equanimity of living a life without a lot of challenges, right? So anybody, if everything's going our way, it's relatively easy to be equanimous. And then when things don't go that person's way, they might not be equanimous anymore. But we want to have a sense of the depth or the potential depth. We don't... uh, kind of innocence or we know we don't know the depth of kindness in us or the depth of patience in us or the depth of this commitment to truth in us. And and here's something, just to open our minds a little bit. Some of you know about morphic fields and the, the basic idea, and I don't want to get into it too much, is, and this I think also relates to the Buddhist teachings on the impersonal nature, anatta, the underlying impersonal nature. But, you know, there is some sense in the semi-scientific circles of these morphic fields that exist that can't actually be measured with scientific instruments. And there's some evidence pointing to how different species can learn things without communicating. So one raccoon learns something, and very quickly, like how to get into a particular kind of garbage can, and then very quickly all the raccoons in that area learn the same thing. Th- th- this happened in uh, Toronto, evidently. Ajahn Punadamo tells the story. And they spent a lot of money devising these really great garbage cans that raccoons couldn't get in. And for a long time, 
more than a year, maybe even several years, the raccoons couldn't get into these garbage cans. But one day, you know, a particularly smart, determined raccoon figured out how to get into it. And in a very quick order, in a way that couldn't be explained by any kind of communication that people understand that raccoons can do, all of the raccoons in the area were able to get into the garbage cans. And there are, there's other examples of this um, of this sort of cross-species communication that doesn't seem to be about our ordinary idea of communication. And you can even sense this in close relationships that somehow there's an exchange of information that isn't verbal. And, you know, it's kind of spooky. But it clearly happens, at least as much as we can tell. I've noticed it in, in times with my partner and in other relationships and in groups of people too sometimes. So the reason I bring this up now is that in terms of the paramis, like the power of patience, it's not quite correct to think of it in terms of how much of this purity I've already set in motion through my endless lifetimes. One of the great values of having this idea of saints, you know, we've have several pictures of Deepama up at the center. Some of you know her. She's one of our contemporary teachers in our lineage, teacher of people like Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and Jack Kornfield and other of our Western teachers. She taught at uh, IMS a few times um, before she died. But one of the great values of having these people who we respect as real saints, having a lot of these, a lot of this purity in their mind, their heart, is that having a sense of what manifested in their lives opens our mind, right? That, that division is just a construction of our mind between the amount of compassion or loving kindness we sense in someone like Deepama, right? even her photograph, sometimes can give you that sense of just the power of her simple love of acceptance. But when we tune into that, if we allow this to happen, we'll see that whatever I intuit in that other person, whether it's the Buddha or some, doesn't matter who the person is, whatever you intuit, whatever, whatever beauty you intuit there, that's happening here. Right? It's not in the picture, and it's not in that person. You're experiencing it right now as you think about that person. So the, these perfections, the power of these perfections, they're seeds that want to do nothing but sprout and express themselves. That is their very nature to fully manifest. So you want to have that sense. It's like uh, it may sound initially like being idealistic or magical thinking, but actually it's uprooting wrong view from the mind. Having a limited view of things is wrong view. Where does that arrogant notion come from? Like that certainty that I'm bad or I can't get concentrated or I'm a needy human being, or I'm stupid, or you know, whatever it is that we 
tell ourselves with some frequency, where does that certainty, that arrogant certainty come from? Well, wrong view. It's literally the mind just doesn't know better. So because it doesn't know better, it just assumes wrongly that it's right, that whatever this is, it's limited. And in a way, we're frightened by the possibility of not being limited. Do you, know, do you feel that? It's like because we, we suddenly become responsible for being a beautiful, wise, loving, engaged human being. And from our limited point of view, that seems scary or a lot of work. Or, But remember, it's not right to think that we have to become this radiant, wise, kind human being. It's the work of nature. Right? It's Our job is to get out of the way. We don't have to be Mother Teresa or be Gandhi or be, you know, these people we might think of as being saints and, you know, being able to handle all that responsibility or, you know, be that strong or that resolute. We just have to get out of the way and let the, these seeds, these paramis, manifest or express themselves in our lives. And it will look different for each of us. You know, for some of us that... Patience might, you know, fully express itself in in really mundane, ordinary ways. You know, have you noticed sometimes when you're in conversation with somebody and it's terribly suffocating? It's like the amount of their neurosis and, you know, the contraction of their mind and heart, it, it feels contagious. And there they are and all their glory, and there we are, and all our fear of being contaminated or being overwhelmed. And uh, in our sort of moment, you know, like Gandhi might have caused the British regime to give up on India, but for us it might be just hanging in there for 10 minutes with this person when it feels like we're really going to be completely, you know, destroyed by just giving them some time, just bearing with them, and not not uh, hating them or not closing our heart, not throwing them out of our heart, but really understanding they're doing the best they can. This is all they can do right now. And to reject them in some way is just to make them more desperately get what they need, right? And to to whatever degree we can just let them be who they are, it will help them to relax that terrible fear that nobody's going to receive me. Nobody will sort of be there for me. So we don't, you know, we don't know where our particular moments of greatness will happen. But we can hold, I think this is really the point here, we can hold this possibility of real power, these beautiful seeds like patients just wanting to express themselves in our lives.
This is from Sharon Salzberg. True patience is constancy. The consistent willingness to use this moment of reality as a vehicle for wisdom and compassion. Patience is not about gritting one's teeth and saying, I'll bear with this for another five minutes because I'm sure it will be over by then and something better will come along. Patience is not dour. It is not unhappy. It is a genuine connection with whatever is happening right now. Patience is a great power. The Buddha talked about it as being both the highest austerity and the highest form of devotion. Right? So it's, it's a kind of love. And love, I really like now, I've been using this more and more, uh, definition of love as this capacity to connect or the capacity to be intimate. She goes on, she says, Patience is a steadfast strength that we apply to each moment. It does not imply a sense of succumbing to complacent giving up, or even an endless standing by. Patience does not mean being enslaved by the moment, nor does it mean that we must accept whatever comes without ever taking action to change things. If the moment requires taking some kind of relevant action, that we must do so. What is most important is the way we take action. Patience is actually quite simple. It means a full and open connection to the moment a connection that involves tremendous integrity. And I think this last sentence is the most important thing in our practice, because this is a question we can ask ourselves in any moment. And think of particularly difficult moments when we're feeling a little despairing or doubting or bored. And And in some way, it's very easy for us to justify being disconnected. It just seems so rational, appropriate to be not intimate, not connected. We're so arrogantly sure that this isn't it. And so to ask some kind of question like, uh, what would it look like for my heart, for this heart, what would it look like for this heart to have a lot of integrity with the conditions that are here now? What would that look like? A lot of respect, a lot of integrity, or even more simply, just some real interest. It's like (coughs) if we practice not being interested, we get really good at not being interested in all of life, right? If If we're justifying being disconnected, we're getting better at living our life, being disconnected. And then when we're disconnected, then our life feels hollow. You know, it feels like not real and worthless. And so we get more desperate about being connected. But the idea of me connecting often involves a concept of what I think I want to connect with. Because we can't connect with anything but this, right? This is the only thing we can connect with. We have everything we need already to have a moment of real integrity, of being connected. So uh, we either take this moment 
or we practice being disconnected one way or another. And it can break our hearts open a little to realize how many moments we've missed that opportunity. You know, we have, truthfully, we have practiced being disconnected quite a bit. And then that's that idealistic place. We disconnect because we imagine, right, that's the construction of our mind, that I can connect when the conditions are some particular way that I imagine them being. Then I can connect when this pain is gone, when I'm warmer, when I learn how to meditate. Sharon, in one of her books, talks about her early retreats with Goenkaji in India and um, just really having so much gratitude and appreciation and so much inspiration, so much energy about how great the path is and, you know, dealing with a lot of knee pain, I think it was. And, uh, you know, and just the teacher would talk. Wenka would talk about, you know, being with experience, being with sensation and, you know, just so appreciating it, but not now. You know, just this idea, well, I'll do it. I got to deal with this knee pain. Maybe I'll take a yoga class or stretch out or instead of realizing that it's here and now. This is where the power of patience, this moment is our perfect teacher for patience. We don't need any different moment. And it it doesn't mean we can be that patience can fully, completely express itself in this moment. It just means we're practicing calling on it, right? It's a power that we have to call on. And it's, like I said earlier, it's not just our patience. It's like every human being that's ever expressed or ever realized real patience, that somehow that potential is there, just waiting to be called on. Same with all the beautiful qualities. It's not like, oh, that was Jesus' power, or that was Buddha's power, or Muhammad's power, or Mother Teresa's power, or you know, this teacher's power, that teacher's power. But these are kind of archetypal powers that can be called on. They're just there, waiting for us. So we do our metta, our loving-kindness practice like we did earlier, or some of you are doing it during the retreat. You know, with each phrase, each time we generate, find that intention and act on it and have that wish, we're kind of knocking on a door. We know it's there. We know that there's something unbounded, limitless, immeasurable. Right? And it's only the mind's doubt, the mind's sort of um, sort of convictions, it's arrogant convictions that stand in the way. So we have to wear them out. We have to wear out the certainty we have that I'm, my mind is fundamentally flawed or I'm bad. We have to wear it out by one moment after another not believing it. It's like, I mean, that's sort of what we do when we sit, you know. It's like we have all this energy about sense pleasure, getting, getting comfortable and all this energy, this, these intentions around becoming somebody. But 
we're kind of calling the bluff of all of this, all of these intentions. Like, is there something here that is deeply satisfying? Or do I need to run to get it, struggle to get it? Does release come from striving to become or striving to get something? (coughs) Or is release inherent? Right? Is the release, the unshakable release of the heart here, inherently here? Or do we have to strive, struggle to get it? And so that's what we're exploring when we set. And it's, you know, it's not just about sitting. There's an active part. It's not just, okay, if I just sit here long enough. Because there are a lot of people who have sat for a long time. A lot of animals can sit really still for a long time. So it's not just about sitting still or accumulating Buddhist retreats. There's this active part of the mind, right? Sort of, we're actively uprooting wrong view from the mind. So that's why we hear, you know, that's why we have these teachings that can actually push our buttons a little bit when we talk about the immeasurable quality of loving kindness or the power, the great power of patience. Because <coughs> we can use it to beat ourselves up. To, like In contrast to what we're hearing, our capacity for patience seems so puny, so limited. But what, we, what we're ha- doing is we're putting aside we're learning to put aside that idea. We have to look with fresh eyes. Really start to notice in our sets these the seeds of these beautiful qualities. Like how when we're just with some pain in the knee, And just the, to see the depth, like where's the end of that intelligence or that wisdom? One of the fruits of practice I, I've noticed now is there are all these little wormholes and they're always a little unexpected. But it's sort of like a lot of time, you know, in sitting, I'm just sort of doing what I do, you know, doing my best to be awake, doing my best to be interested, doing my best to be relaxed. And then, and and it just feels like kind of the ordinary experience of being a practitioner who wants to be free of suffering. And then little wormholes arise and it's like I go from being an ordinary person to a momentary experience of freedom like not an ordinary person, and then back to being an ordinary person. And it's not so much like a special move that I did in that moment, but it's it's just the karmic result of bearing with this life as it is, right? Like staying in the game with awareness, with enough 
integrity, enough patience, enough gentleness, enough interest, is staying in the middle as imperfectly as I am, right? As a practitioner, trying to be a good practitioner, staying in the game, staying in the game, staying in the game, and then something opens up. And then it closes down. But what that does, each little moment of freedom, it just reminds the mind that it's already here. Right? And it, it, like these beautiful qualities, everything that the heart truly aspires to is not somewhere else. So then, in our job, you know, in the relative sense, in our job of being a practitioner, being a good practitioner, they're just gradually, over time, more ease, more resilience, more tolerance of difficult, unpleasant stuff that comes, more curiosity. Like It's like you notice sometimes when you're out in nature, it's like, it's just the woods, just the woods. Then every once in a while, something opens up. And the magic or mystery of it all is like right here. And before it was just like, you know how it is sometimes when we're walking, it's like we're looking for a special tree. And it's just not, they're not special. We want a big tree or an interesting tree. Or, you know, we want a wild animal. I want to see a wild animal. Not a deer. You know, I see lots of deer. I want a bobcat or a, you know, a bird that like a peleated woodpecker, something interesting or, 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 you know, something big and bad like a bunch of trees that got blown down or, you know, it's something that has personal drama to it. But every once in a while, something seeps through all of that craziness of our minds. Or we call it the inherent perfection, and it's so surpri- It's always surprising, and it, we're always left to some degree with the flavor, the feeling that it's okay. You know, the whole thing is okay. So I'll leave it here tonight. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Thanks for listening, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.